Before we start talking with Murley, I want to kind of go through a brief timeline of this this legacy that's sitting across from me right now. In 1968, she graduated from Pomona College with a degree in sociology. 1971, she helped found the National Women's Political Caucus. 1975 to 1987, she was a consumer affairs director of Atlantic Ridgefield Company, also known as ARCO. 1988, she was a commissioner of public works for the city of Los Angeles. She was sworn in on June 12th, which also is the 25th anniversary of Medgar's murder. She was the second woman, the first African-American woman. 1995 to 1998, she was the third woman, first full-time chairperson of the National Board of Directors of the NAACP. She's credited with restoring the NAACP to national prominence. She's a noted author of three books, For Us the Living, which was published in 1967, Watch Me Fly, What I Learned on the Way to Becoming the Woman I Was Meant to Be, the autobiography of Medgar Evers, A Hero's Life and Legacy, are reveled through his writings, letters, and speeches. But I think she is most notably known as the widow of slain civil rights leader Medgar Evers. Merle, it is an honor to be sitting across from you. Thank you for being here. Now I know why I'm tired. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a busy busy and very full life. Well, and there's something else I want to make sure that I, I make note of here as we go through this timeline of yours. For the first time in history of the National Civil Rights Museum's Freedom Award ceremonial presentation, there was three individuals, and this was October of 2009, that were honored for their influence and commitment to peace, justice, and equality. In addition to Julius Irving and the Dalai Lama, Merle Evers Williams was also awarded this Lifetime Achievement and Legacy Freedom Award. Congratulations. Thank you. So, Merle, let's go back. I want to start a little bit, too, here about about that man, Medgar Evers. On June 12, 1963, at 37, Medgar Evers... Field Secretary for the Mississippi uh, NAACP died in a horrifying act of political violence. Outside his home in the summer of 1963, he was gunned down by a midnight assassin by the name of Byron De La Beckwith. I think they also known as Delay is what they called him. Mm-hmm. It's been 47 years since Megger's murder, almost 50 years. And uh, it took 31 years and three trials to bring that man responsible for his murder, uh, white supremacist Byron Dealer Breckwith, uh, to justice. And I think that was in the movie that came out in 1996, Ghosts of Mississippi, which is playing this evening at the Deschutes Public Library. Oh. Yes, it is. And as part of the novel idea with uh, Catherine Stockett's appearance coming to town. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you... Um, I've often heard you say that your purpose, that you were driven, that people see who Medgar was and what he did. Who was Medgar Evers? That is such a personal question because I see him first um, as my husband, uh, the father of uh, my three children, as someone who was as committed as I think any human being could be in the pursuit of justice, decency, equal opportunity, Um, a man who I feel to this day deserves so much credit uh, for what he did and for what he gave. Medgar, of course, was someone who did not want notoriety. Um, I would say to him, all of these people are coming in from other parts of the country, and the media is following them around, and no one's paying any attention to what you are doing. You have to promote yourself. You have to promote yourself. And he would give me this rather dirty look, and he said, I'm not in it for the publicity. I'm here to do a job, and that's it. Therefore, after his assassination, I knew that with the fickle minds that we human beings have, that soon after his death he would be forgotten. 
and I couldn't allow that to happen. So I shaped everything that I did in my life based on my ability to keep his name alive. And I must tell you, Don, it's been a struggle. Um, People remember a little. uh, They choose to forget. I think we choose to forget because it's too painful to remember, and we don't want to get caught in the memories of the past. It's like, let's move forward, let's move forward, which is wonderful. That's fine, and that's what we should do. But not without forgetting uh, forgetting what happened in the past to get us to where we are today. I'm still committed uh, to keeping Medgar's name alive, his work, in every way I can. But I went to Mississippi, um, this was a year or two ago, and I returned home to Ben, and I was standing on my deck looking at the mountains, and I was so tired. And I said, Medgar, I'm tired. I didn't see him, I didn't hear him, but it was one of these telepathic things that I think we experience sometime. And uh, it was this voice, his voice that said, who told you to put in all of this time? I didn't. And I had this urge to throw a saucer at him, as I had done a couple of times in our marriage, and it would just amuse him to no end. But it's so important that uh, he be remembered, and not just as the man who was assassinated in Jackson, Mississippi, but more for the essence of him, what he did and what he gave now, let me ask you, too, about his role as the NAACP field secretary. Getting people to vote was a big part of his life. Can you talk a little bit, too, about the dangers of getting people to vote during the 1960s and even 1950s? Oh, in, in, in the 50s uh, was actually when we started uh, with the NAACP. People were afraid to uh, do anything out of the traditional place that had been established for them in the segregated society. You didn't challenge the system. And to want to and attempt to register to vote was a challenge uh, to the segregated system. People could lose their homes, and many of them did. Uh, It was one of those things that if you went to the city hall to try to register, your name was immediately taken and put put on a list. Your address, the place where you worked, everything. And the next day, it was not unusual to get a call from the bank, pay in full, or you're foreclosed. Your address, your phone number would be published in newspapers the very next day. You were harassed. Gunshots went through your home. You didn't know whether you were safe, your children were safe, any member of your family. People were taken out and lynched. I have actually witnessed a young girl at 12 years of age leaving church being lassoed and drugged along the street because of her parents' uh, activism. That is why I become so intense about the importance of a right that we all have to register, to vote, to express our concerns and our feelings through something that is so special in this country. And that's a freedom we all deserve to have. Now, the night of his assassination, which was June 12, 1963, hours prior to that, President Kennedy had given his civil rights speech. Mm -hmm. And in there, just I've got a few points here, as he he had mentioned, the right to receive equal, equal service 
the right to vote without interference or fear, the right to enjoy the privileges of being an American. He also said in that speech that law alone cannot make a man see right. Between the time of Kennedy's speech, which I know you and your children stayed up and you Mm -hmm. watched and listened to in those hours up until... Medgar's murder. What did you think of that speech and that time between the time Medgar pulled into the driveway? Did it give you any sense of peace? Did it make you think maybe we're on no, the right track? No, there, there was no sense of peace. It was a sense of urgency. Uh, one had to literally live in Mississippi, almost be born there, and know what it was like to be black, to work for hope and change when so many people due to fear mostly backed away from it and there were just a few of us that were there alone. Menger was the leader in Mississippi. He was a target. We both knew that his life was on the line. We both knew that from everything uh, that had escalated in this racial war, so to speak, uh, he was going to be the target. We knew it. It was just a matter of when. So with President Kennedy saying what he did, um, that was good to hear. But I think my focus was more on what had happened that morning. Medgar had aged, I would say, over 10 years in, in the last couple of months with all the demonstrations of the young and the old being thrown in what we called a concentration camp. There was the fairground. Uh, where the police would bring in water and food in tubs and spit in it and, 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 and walk away. It was, it was that kind of thing. Medgar was on tele, uh, television. He did a television uh, interview uh, just prior to that. But that morning, he told us all he loved us. And he walked to the car and he came back and told us he loved us again. That was highly unusual for us, for him. He called three or four times during that day to see how we were and to say, I love you. And it was almost as though I knew that something was going to happen that day, that night, or within the next few days. It was just too unusual. I found out later that Medgar had been told by a very dear friend of his who had a very good friend in Gulfport, Mississippi, that this plan for his murder had been laid out, and he was shielding me from it. And I asked him the night before he was killed, what can I do to make it better for you? And he said to me, you're doing everything that I need, but I want you to take care of my children. If you're just tuning in, this is Open Air. I'm Don Newton, and we are talking with a legacy, Marley Evers-Williams, who also is a resident here of Bend, Oregon, and we are privileged to have you here at our studio. Thank you. We had talked yesterday, and um, I had said to you, I said, Marley, there are times where I feel, uh, I said, I feel very ignorant. I feel embarrassed because I've read your books. I've been following you for many, many years. I said, I don't remember a lot of the civil rights. I don't realize everything that you wrote in your books for us, the living was really, I mean, that was three, four years after Medgar's murder. Mm -hmm. So I know it was very, still very emotional. I mean, what you wrote in that book and it, 
educated me and enlightened me and it made me very curious as to and I talked to one of the high school teachers here in town and said do you he's a history teacher and I said do you talk much about this I said I'm amazed at what I don't know and I said actually it almost seems like it wasn't till Roots came on TV that I was introduced to any of the civil rights or any of the racial you know slavery I mean and I said I feel really embarrassed and you said you know there's amazing of how much stuff we do not know about civil rights well, Don, you, you know, it's it's good to be embarrassed because that's a motivator, and I hope that's true with uh, with everyone. But none of us, even those of us who were born and lived there, realize the depth of that. My native state of Mississippi only two years ago had an order through the legislature that civil rights would be taught in schools. We, we, we don't get that. When I was a student in school, there was a little thin book that we used for four weeks out of each year that talked about Marian Anderson and uh, Carter and two or three other uh, prominent African-Americans. That's all we got. We didn't know. And the sad part is that today there are so many people who don't know that history there are so many people, including young adults, who are African-American and otherwise, who say this isn't important. That happened back then. That's old stuff. This is today. We need to move forward. I agree we need to move forward, but not in this void of, of letting that history go. Um, correct me uh, if I'm, I'm, I'm in error with this, and I don't think I am, but uh, our soldiers, West Point, are taught strategies of battle and war based on battles that took place centuries ago. They haven't dismissed that. They use that knowledge, those techniques, to build on, to sharpen Everything that's needed to fight battles today, including nuclear battles. So why should we push aside a history that is rich, rich in struggle, rich in pain, rich in horror, but also rich in bringing people together? You know, I, I, I thought about something um, uh, as I reread uh, portions of the book, The Help and how it impacts us. I thought of how evil prejudice and racism is from birth to death and in between. And I thought about the birth of our last child and how we rushed to get to the hospital. There was no place to park. How Medgar had to let me out of the car and I struggled to get to the back of the hospital so I could go up in a filthy freight elevator to get to the segregated part of that hospital to give birth to my child. Birth. Then I thought about death. Medgar was not admitted to any of the hospitals there in Jackson until they found out who he was. So from birth to death, there we are. It impacts us in all parts of our life. And one of the things that, that I hope will come from this, I think, resurgence of interest in African-American history 
is that we learn from those things of the past and be able to move forward on that particularly our younger generation of people. I know we talk about bridging that gap. Mm -hmm. How do we do that? Communication. And that sounds so simple. You, for instance, are doing a fantastic job just by having this show of being brave enough, in a sense, to have me as a guest. We may think that uh, uh, Bend is the perfect place, but when I moved here, um, there was a bum put in our mailbox. Huh? I have received, not recently, but I have received all kinds of uh, damaging mail. So, you, you know, communicating with people, we don't always have to agree, but as long as we can talk, we may be able to find some common interest. Hopefully schools will, will meet the challenge to to have people like myself and others come in, not in anger or bitterness, but from the historical factor. It's nothing to be afraid of and to run away from. It's learning, it's compassion, and it's doing that's so important. I have to ask you, too, the NAACP just celebrated its 100-year anniversary. So I think we're actually we're at 101 years. Which, um, 101. What do you say about it today? What would Medgar say about where the NAACP is today? He would probably say the same thing I'm saying. Focus on one or two things and don't try to be all things to all people, uh, which is one of the things that the association has done. There certainly would be joy. Uh, on his part and mine that this organization has lasted as long as it has and has been able to get legislation through, has been able to open up schools, the workplace, all of those opportunities. However, it is an organization for all people to belong to. It's not just for African Americans. It says the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Someone said, well, why don't you change that colored? Well, if we look at statistics of the world's population, there are, I believe at this time, more people of color than there are not. So let's embrace it all. Uh, let's reach out to young people, help them to understand the importance. Let's build leaders. And I think that's what the association is doing now. Has everything been solved and fulfilled with the election of Barack Obama? Has uh, the journey to equality, has it been fulfilled? Oh, my, 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 my. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is an, em my answer is an emphatic no. Absolutely not. I think many Americans were so pleased and happy that we, myself included, that we had finally reached the point in this country where an African-American, uh, how, how do we determine that, too? What is it? One drop of African-American blood with any other race means that that person is African-American, whatever. How fortunate we were to reach a point of activism and care that we in America were able to see beyond color, see the possibility of strong leadership, and vote this man in. He has a job. I don't understand why anybody would want it. Uh, but if we look at what happened, what, last week, a week before last, 
with uh, leading up to the passage of the Hell Bill. John Lewis, who is one of our greatest African-American heroes, representative in Congress, along with others, were called nigger, were spat upon. You would think that we were back in the 50s or the 60s with the outrage that some people in that large crowd, um, some say Tea Party activists, whatever they were, they were so disrespectful of those people, what they represent and what they had done. We listened to people say, we're going to take back our country. What does that say to me? And perhaps I'm overly sensitive, and if so, I'm glad I am. It says it's the same thing that some of the hate groups said earlier, which was their thing. Take back my country. We have such a long way to go, and we should not fool ourselves that having Barack Obama as president is a solution to all of our problems. It's not. So, Merle, one quick question before we go, because I think we're going to get cut off here, is uh, you've suffered a lot of loss throughout your life between Medgar, your second husband, Walter, and Mm -hmm. your son, Daryl, in 2001. How do you keep going? Where does that come from? My faith um, that, um, that there is a supreme being that I call God. Without that belief, I don't know what I'd do or where I'd be. And then I lean very heavily on the teachings of my grandmother, uh, Annie, the good um, messages and life's teachings that Medgar and Walter gave me, and being thankful for all of the people who have supported me, those that I know and that I don't know. Hey, thanks for listening to Open Air. So I'd also like to thank my special guest, my friend, Merle Evers-Williams. Merle, if you're listening, thank you for your life, for your legacy, for your wisdom, guidance, and for your friendship. You've been listening to a KPOV Critical Conversation. To hear more engaging interviews on important topics, please visit kpov.org slash critical dash conversations.